I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our daily podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome Simon Ostrovsky to our broadcast today. He is PBS NewsHour's special correspondent. Um, welcome to the program, Simon. Hi, thanks, Alex. Uh, let me ask you, you just returned from a reporting trip to Belarus and can give us some insight into what was transpiring in the aftermath of the sham election. And let's start there. What percent of the country would you agree, would you say agrees with that assessment that it was a sham election? Well, unfortunately, because it was a sham election, it's really difficult to know how many people uh, voted for the incumbent, Alexander Lukashenko, who has been running the country for 26 years without interruption. But uh, it's fair to say that a uh, incredibly large proportion of the population turned out to vote, and a large proportion of the population don't believe that the 80% he claims he won uh, is an accurate representation of what happened. And it's a large enough share of the population um, who don't believe that, that they come out in their tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands, um, to protest against the results of that election, but also uh, significantly to protest against the uh, police violence that was used against protesters in the days immediately following the vote. So, you know, the, the claims that Lukashenko has made are definitely going to be dubious, especially because of some of the sort of very obvious uh, falsification tactics that were deployed that, you know, were very, they were artless and and, um, you know, could be seen essentially with the naked eye. I'm talking about things like um, independent uh, observers representing other political forces uh, within Belarus who'd sent their representatives to the polling stations who weren't even allowed into polling stations to observe the count, uh, which is uh, legally required in Belarus, um, to sort of even more uh, dark means that were used, such as burning entire stacks of ballots that were then unceremoniously dumped into trash cans. Um, some of the ballots surviving, uh, you know, just sort of uh, you know, Bible-thick stacks that were marked in favor of uh, Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya um, that had been discarded and not counted in the vote. And then also the impossibility of a recount because um, the government announced that it had destroyed all of the ballots um, so that that wouldn't be possible. So, you know, I can't answer your question specifically, but there's enough uh, disbelief in what happened um, for any kind of result claimed by any side to be delegitimized quite easily. You're saying that he, he was claiming, purporting to win by 80 uh, percent, a, a huge margin. Yeah, an unrealistic margin and a margin that he hasn't claimed um, for the first time, you know, the, the, in, in all of the past elections, barring the first one, which he won fairly and squarely back in uh, 1994, I think it was, um, there hasn't been a fair election in Belarus. And most of the time, he's claimed results that are around uh, 80%. And they, they weren't believed uh, in those days either. But the difference, I think, uh, now is that there's a lot, of, a lot more dissatisfaction um, with Alexander Lukashenko for, you know, various reasons that have sort of bubbled to the fore over the last year, a couple of years, I would say, and that has to do with the economy. Um, 
and also has to do with the coronavirus uh, lockdown, which actually never went into effect in Belarus itself because uh, Lukashenko doesn't believe that the coronavirus is a real thing. Um, but it had the consequence of making it impossible for Belarusians uh, to travel abroad um, over the course of the year. And a lot of Belarusians uh, earn wages abroad and then send them back home. So the economy took a hit you know, regardless of whether Lukashenko believes that the pandemic is real or not. Um, and then also, you know, you've had Russia, uh, which over the years has been very, very clear uh, about what its intentions are for Belarus. And you might be aware that uh, the country has this union state agreement with Russia where it's, you know, they're still two separate countries, but uh, over time, increasingly, they share in sh uh, more and more infrastructure. And so Russia has been pushing for more of that uh, sovereignty to be sort of eked away from Belarus. Um, and uh, Putin has been demanding and has been rebuffed uh, by Lukashenko on many occasions um, to uh, put Russian military bases in the country. Um, right now, they, they share a sort of a customs system and border control. Um, but beyond that, the uh, union state is pretty much on paper. What do you think was the motivation to fabricate the results so egregiously and so explicitly? Um, do you think that it was to incite the mass demonstrations, protests, and civil disobedience that the country has seen? Because you can steal an election and for it not to be, in your words, such a dubious uh, contest that is clearly fabricated. I think that, you know, it's part of the dictator playbook, really. It's to claim a result that is so improbable um, that simply by claiming it, you are showing society uh, that you are able to get away with absolutely anything and there's nothing anybody can do about it because that's how it's worked up until now. Um, I think he's never really gotten the high um, election results that he's claimed to have gotten. But that's really the point uh, of claiming such a high result. It's uh, sort of an intimidation tactic in and of itself. I don't think he, he wants people to believe that that's what he actually got. I think he wants people to believe that there's nothing that they can do about it. And um, so I think he was as surprised as the rest of the world was when this time things didn't go uh, in exactly the same way as they had on numerous uh, occasions before, because you had a opposition movement that predates this uh, revolution in the making, um, but it was sort of viewed by the general population as being kind of, you know, a marginal group of radicals that had nothing to do with their day-to-day -day regular life. And suddenly that's shifted because now most people in Belarus see the government as the opposition and themselves as the majority. They feel that there were more people opposed to Lukashenko than supported him. So although the margins there are really ridiculous, I think, you know, in past elections, people had the sense that, okay, he didn't get the 80% that he was claiming, but possibly he got more than 50% and we have to live with him. And this time around, they looked at the 80% and they said, well, no, I mean, so many of the people that I know went out and voted for Svetlana Tikhanovska 
that he probably didn't even make half. And therefore, you know, this claim is ridiculous and we're going to go out and we're going to say something about it. Simon, you use the term a revolution in the making. Um, when it comes to the equilibrium of human rights and democracy, there has been a downward spiral. And this, what, what transpired is emblematic of the degeneration of, of democracy. Is there a plausible path for these protesters to influence the political reality on the ground, if not reverse the election results entirely? It's a difficult question that you ask because I think essentially you're asking me, do the, does the protest movement have a chance at success? And I, I mean, right. That's what you're asking. Right. Right. And, 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 and I think that it certainly does have a chance of success, but I don't think that that chance is guaranteed. Um, And, you know, things could really develop in a number of different directions from uh, this point forward. Because what is the, the path that you would say would lead these protests to translate into tangible political victory? What would that look like? What the opposition um, has asked for, uh, what uh, Tsikhanovska herself, she's in exile in Lithuania, um, has asked for, is for uh, dialogue between the current authorities and you know, representatives of Belarusian society to try to find a way out of the impasse. Um, because, you know, looking at it from afar, it might seem like uh, Lukashenko has... Uh, nothing to gain by engaging with the, the opposition and the protest movement. If he just stands firm, then potentially he can hold on to power. And I think that's essentially, you know, that's been his plan so far. Um, but the problem is, is that he doesn't really have uh, the confidence of even his closest allies at this point, um, Vladimir Putin and Russia, uh, because they also see that the Belarusian public um, finds Lukashenko to be extraordinarily unpopular. And, you know, his unpopularity isn't going to go um, anywhere. And he has to tread carefully. The Russians have to tread carefully because everything that they've tried up until now uh, in order to quash the protests has had the opposite reaction. It's uh, There have been a lot of unpredicted consequences of uh, what the Belarusian authorities have done. So, you know, for example, when they initially cracked down on protesters right after the election, that led to even more protesters coming out. And then in the, in the weeks since that has happened, um, they've recalibrated their tactics to a sort of softer touch because, you know, they saw the mistake that they'd made initially and what that led to. And so now when they do arrest people in much smaller numbers um, from protests than they did in the beginning, um, then those people, for the most part, there have been some egregious cases, but for the most part, you know, they're not tortured and, and beaten to within an inch of the, their life as they were in the very beginning. There's also a new strategy of instead of just sort of trying to sweep everybody off of the streets, um, of targeting sort of people they consider to be high profile organizers like uh, labor strike leaders or members of the Opposition Coordination Council. There were seven of them, and now there's only one who's not in jail or has fled the country, and that's Nobel Prize winner um, Svetlana Alexeyevich. So I think, you know, 
Lukashenko has to be careful, but the Russians also have to be careful um, because they're also burned and they're burned not by Belarus, they're burned by their experience in Ukraine. Um, when they backed a very unpopular leader and then annexed Crimea and then started the war in uh, Eastern Ukraine in the Donbass. So, you know, some might say, well, look, the Russians got away with the beautiful jewel of a peninsula in Crimea. That may be true, but what they lost was Ukraine, which they had in their sphere of orbit, which is a giant European country uh, with a population of around 40 million people. Those are people that they're never going to get back, and Ukraine is very unlikely to ever re-enter Russia's orbit in the near future. And I think when Russia thinks about how it's going to support Alexander Lukashenko to retain its influence over Belarus, they have to be very careful um, not to just keep Lukashenko happy, but to keep the people of Belarus happy too. They need to please um, two masters here. Why were there no checks on his power within the government? Is there is there just not a, a, a system of checks and balances there that could have performed that function? It's just not that kind of a country. Um, you know, like I said, he's run Belarus for... 26 years. And if you think about it, that's an extraordinarily long period of time. Uh, it's longer than I think any other leader in, in Europe um, has, has been a head of state, except for maybe, you know, the Queen of England, um, which doesn't really count. Right. And even Vladimir Putin is a jun- junior European leader compared to Alexander Lukashenko. So you know, over those decades um, of rule over Belarus, he's uh, created a system that uh, serves him and serves him only. There is a parliament in name, but, you know, it's a rubber stamp parliament. And there is what about a, the uh, judiciary. And the judiciary, same, same goes for the judiciary, handpicked um, judges who know that their positions depend on uh, loyalty to the regime. Um, you know, I, I don't know that the parliament uh, gets a a chance to veto, you know, top judicial picks in, in, in the same way that we have here in the United States. Um, but even if they did, then that wouldn't be a barrier to installing uh, loyalists, because like I said, the parliament itself is uh, also full of loyalists who have been placed there, not by accident. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about Belarus as a political entity, you're really talking about uh, a government that is uh, for one man and by one man. And the opposition movement, um, the protest movement, is against one man. And I think that's also been part of the miscalculation is that the authorities have, have tried to portray the protesters as representatives of you know this or that opposition politician. But what we haven't seen at any of the protests um, are protesters carrying placards, you know, um, with the names of different political parties or political leaders. Uh, they're carrying placards with the name of Alexander Lukashenko on them and the fact that they want him to step down. Um, they also haven't been carrying flags. You know, this isn't uh, aside from the, uh, the original Belarusian flag that was adopted after the breakup of the Soviet Union um, that's not used today officially. But uh, they haven't been carrying, you know, flags of the European Union, as we saw um, during the Euromaidan revolution in Ukraine. They certainly haven't been carrying around Russian flags. So it's not a geopolitical conflict. It's sort of very mm, 
narrow in its focus, targeting uh, Lukashenko himself and uh, nobody else. So when the government goes and arrests these various um, political leaders or expels them, exiles them, and so forth, thinking they're going to be able to cut off the head of the snake, the thing is, there is no snake. You know, this is not a political party or a bunch of political parties getting together to try to take power. These are the, this is, at its base, a pro-democracy movement, and no more, no less. The plausible aspiration here is dialogue. Um, but were there to be anybody at a high enough rank to ally themselves, himself, herself, or themselves with the protesters, would that be meaningful? I mean, even though you're describing the, the situation um, as a one-man rule, uh, are there any figures in, in, uh, in the country who, um, were they to, to kind of uh, form alliance with the protests, it could be influential in triggering some change? You know, I think that the uh, protesters had hoped that more high-profile figures w- would defect, and there have been some defections, mo- mostly sort of in the middle and lower ranks. Uh, we saw lots of people leave the uh, state television network um, in protest. Uh, we saw uh, lots of uh, workers' movements come out of the state-owned factories um, that provide revenue to the regime. Um, We saw, for example, uh, the entire staff of of the National Theater of Belarus um, resign uh, and put their resignation letters right at the feet of the culture minister who had come to see them and uh, to try to uh, negotiate with them to stay on. Um, And I think there have been several ambassadors um, around the around the world who represent Belarus who have also. switch sides. Um, but there haven't been, you know, there's not been a minister, uh, the, the leader of a government department who's done that. Um, and, and I think that that, again, goes back to the fact that these people aren't, you know, they're not public servants in the, in the sense that they, they came into the job uh, to do a, a service for the public. They came into the job because they were appointed by uh, Lukashenko because of their qualifications of loyalty. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's not that surprising that, that they haven't thrown uh, Lukashenko, who's made them under the bus. I think they also feel that perhaps they wouldn't get a very fair shake out of, uh, you know, uh, any new government that might come to power. Um, Everybody uh, feels that they're implicated in some way uh, in what has taken place and the shocking violence that has taken place um, and, you know, in the various other uh, crimes of the regime. And so um, there hasn't been this sort of disintegration of uh, those people around them. And so, the, the, you know, dialogue is the main thing that the opposition is asking for, but they've asked for other things as well. And uh, one of those uh, they raised today uh, with the European Parliament, uh, Tikhanovska herself uh, asked uh, for targeted sanctions to be brought against members of uh, um, Lukashenko's uh, circle um, in order to further just that, to further exactly what you're talking about, to make, to create incentive um, for those around him um, to abandon him. And so on Monday, the... Um, 
the foreign ministers of the various European Union countries are going to have a meeting about Belarus um, following on the heels of this uh, parliamentary meeting to decide not if they're going to implement uh, sanctions against Belarus, but what sanctions to implement and how they're going to implement them. So that's already something that's in the works that's also going to turn up the temperature um, for Belarus. I mean, it, it seems, though, that the United States in this entire process has kind of been um, missing in action. Uh, I, I haven't seen, um, you know, anything besides declarative measures up until this point, uh, you know, in order to try to resolve the crisis in the country. And um, I, I don't know if that's going to change in the near future, or maybe the administration is just too uh, absorbed with the, our own um, election race here in the United States. Uh, but there hasn't really been a lot of American leadership on this issue. The disintegration of liberal democracy of human rights in that part of the world. Um, but of course, it's in every part of the world. Um, based on your reporting, you know, how, how do you contextualize the degeneration of that regime over two decades plus uh, relative to what's transpired in other Eastern, you know, Eastern European countries, Russia, and now in the United States? I think that, to me, it sends the opposite message. Um, I don't think it's, Belarus is an example of the degeneration of the liberal democratic ideal and of the idea that human rights are important and something that countries need to worry about. In, I, I think that essentially the Belarusian protest movement um, is showing that those sorts of things are still actually very relevant. Um, in particular to the people of Belarus, because, you know, the, the, the human rights and civil society and, um, and uh, democratic norms are something that people haven't known in Belarus since the early 90s, okay? So that was all gone already. Uh, what's happening right now is an attempt to reclaim that legacy, um, that very short-lived legacy when it comes to Belarus, um, because it was only three or four years that they had it. Uh, but uh, this whole protest movement, I think, is uh, looked upon by people in the region as an example of, you know, uh, a society that is fighting for its rights and that is trending in the opposite direction. And I think that's also, you know, why this is such a terrifying phenomenon for the Kremlin, um, because when a protest movement happens in, you know, a Western country or, I don't know, in the Middle East or somewhere further afield to overthrow a dictator, um, the, I don't think that worries the Kremlin too much, although although they did step in to save the Assad regime because of the signal they thought that would, would send. Imagine how they feel when um, this is happening so close to home on their border with their union state uh, of Belarus, no less. What kind of a signal does that send to the Russian people? Um, I think, you know, that's what's keeping uh, Putin up at night right now. And obviously, I don't want to speculate um, on who is behind or the reasons for the poisoning of Russia's opposition leader, uh, Alexei Navalny. Um, but it's interesting that it happened in the middle and the throes of this uh, Belarusian protest movement. Somebody in Russia thought, 
um, that we need to, you know, nip this in the bud. Although he's been around for many years at this point, why now is the question that you have to ask yourself. Um, you know, it, it could be because of the general sense of unease that the Russian leadership has when they see a uh, peaceful pro-democracy uh, protest movement blossoming and flourishing uh, right at their front doorstep. And as, as a final question, what is the prescriptive measure here? Um, you know, there, there may or may not be a new administration in the United States that can shepherd a generation of democratic leadership in that part of the world. But based on your reporting on the ground, what would be the keys to undoing the authoritarianism that has emerged in recent decades? I'm going to shy away from a prescriptive answer because, uh, you know, I'm a reporter and my job is to go there and see what's happening and sort of tell my audience what I've seen and, and what's going on. And, you know, to advise uh, the U.S. government or any other government on what, what their steps should be would be going out of my wheelhouse a little bit. You've witnessed the deterioration, disintegration, destruction of some norms that were central to life. And when that uh, awakening occurred in, in, in uh, Eastern European countries and former Soviet states. Political situation uh, in Russia and many other parts of the former Soviet Union. Uh, has been so stifling uh, over the last uh, couple of decades. And, you know, people really sense that stagnation and have started describing um, their state as something akin to what it was like under Brezhnev, who had been in power in the Soviet Union for an extraordinarily long time. I mean, I think we know that it's very unhealthy um, for leadership uh, not to change over extended periods of time. And it's, it's unhealthy because it, uh, you know, it creates, it, 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 it rather, it, um, it, it stops, it stops the society from progressing and moving forward and modernizing um, the economy from developing uh, and, you know, from essentially people's lives flourishing. I think places that, you know, have the same leader for a long time all end up in the same sort of morass. And uh, Belarus is just a little bit further along in that process um, of frustration and disillusionment um, with the unchanging leadership than even Russia is, because like I said, Lukashenko's got a few years seniority on even Vladimir Putin. But think about it, Vladimir Putin has been in power for a really long time too. He's been in power since 1999. He's been in power for over 20 years. So he's just extended his term limits to, uh, I think, uh, 2036 by changing the constitution. Um, you know, I think it's really an open question of whether he'll get that far uh, if Belarus is anything to go by. Simon, thank you so much for your insight today. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it.